Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another podcast of eGeos. We are energy geoscientists, and we are inclusive to people other than geoscientists. I have a really um, amazing guest with us here today. His name is Taylor Maddie, and he is currently employed by Baker Hughes in geothermal energy. Hi, Taylor. How are you doing today? I am just doing fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you today uh, just because up until now, I've focused mostly on people who have made their career in oil and gas and are thinking about maybe switching to renewables or transforming their career into something else. And you're actually someone who has done that. So I'm really excited to hear your story. And I'm sure many people out there are as well. So my first question for you today, could you tell me and our audience a little bit more about where you're from, where you grew up, and maybe something um, that really resonated with you that ended up influencing you later in life when you were growing up? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I grew up in, uh, in the part of Pennsylvania where it's a happy mix between uh, backwoods hillbillies and the Amish country. So a really remote place, one of the, one of the only remaining villages of Pennsylvania. Um, and so when uh, about mid 2000 came about, um, the Marcellus Shale boom started. And so that was a really uh, defining moment for, for you know, not just me, but my, my whole community. Yeah. Because overnight we saw uh, farmers who were, you know, weeks away from bankruptcy become millionaires because of the massive, um, lots of land that they had that were leased to oil and gas companies. And all of a sudden, you know, our community is just a thriving source of wealth within the course of a couple months. And so it was a really profound impact on just about every, every bit of the way of our, our lives in Pennsylvania. And so naturally I was really interested in it. You know, it, it was, it was, it was great for our family, great for our community. And, you know, there's money just blowing out of the ground too. So I, I, I'd be, I, w- I would be, uh, you know, remiss to say that it was, it was pretty attractive just because of the amount of wealth that all of a sudden was generated coming from like a, a poorer part of the state. Of course. And so, yeah, and, and it was it was it was a real big impact on you know what the, some of the decisions were that I made later on in life. Um, and so uh, from there, I I ended up going to school um, at Penn State University, which was uh, about an hour and a half from my hometown, and um, they had a program there for studying petroleum and natural gas engineering. And the program had gone from, I think it was about uh, 11 to 12 people in uh, a few years before I got there to about 150 people when, when I started that program just because of the, uh, the massive impact that oil and gas had on Pennsylvania and Ohio. So it grew astronomically. Um, but then, you know, like uh, I guess all bubbles, the, uh, the oil and gas industry eventually had a little bit of a, a downside. So in 2015, when I graduated... Um, I started working for the, the same company I'm working for now, which is Baker Hughes, mm-hmm. as a uh, field engineer out in Wyoming with a degree in petroleum engineering. Mm-hmm. And when I uh, when I went into college, oil was about $110 a barrel. Mm-hmm. When I graduated from college, oil was about $40 a barrel. Yeah. And we had, I think, about a 10 to 15% job placement in an industry that traditionally had about a 90 to 95% job placement years before that. So I graduated and was one of the few people that actually had a job. But 
It's not to say that didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was hired, and then consequently, about three months later, I was laid off almost oh. immediately. And oh so <laughs> I am so sorry to hear that. That must have been so difficult. Yeah, I mean, once again, you know, very pivotal moment, I guess, in my life. And of course, at the time, it was terrible. I, I was, I, I was uh, pretty much stranded in Wyoming. I was, I was working out in Wyoming, um, and I all of a sudden, you know, lost everything. I didn't have anywhere to live, and I didn't have any family or, or friends there. So I was uh, almost homeless for a little bit. Yeah. And um, and then yeah, I I, I kind of just toured around the uh, the Rocky Mountains for a little bit, doing some odd jobs, and eventually uh, ended up in California where my brother lives. And uh, just took some time to kind of recuperate. You know, I was, I was going through some personal things at the same time, and all combined with losing a job and not really having a direction. And honestly, you know, like I, it, it was difficult. You know, having only a degree in petroleum engineering, in and it's it's a great career and it's a great career path. But the challenge is that it's very hard to diversify from anything oil and gas yes. with a petroleum engineering degree. You know, and that's a struggle I think a lot of people are going through right now as we're mm-hmm. in a similar situation than we were like five years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I was like, I was almost felt like I was on a sinking ship yeah. and I, I didn't really know what to do. And I um, just started kind of really thinking about how my skill set could be applied to different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I came across geothermal energy and at the time I really didn't have any idea what it was. Or, uh, or how it could be used or what the potential was and just doing doing my homework and, and trying to get connected with people in the industry, I realized, wow, this is this is incredible. You know, it's, it's almost like the big brother or, or little brother or however you look at it of oil and gas because the skills are so applicable to it, the challenges are so similar, but the outcome is so profoundly different. Yeah. You know, it has just such a positive impact. I almost compare it to like the dark side of the force and the light side of the force is mm-hmm. oil and gas and it could be used for good or it could be used for bad. Yep. Uh, and so I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, and I, I started trying to figure out, you know, what, what the path would be. Um, and I, I discovered a program at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Yeah. And uh, just blindly reached out to um, Rosalind Archer, who was the, uh, the I, I didn't know at the time, actually, but she was like the dean of the program and a, a pretty high-ranking figure uh, within the university of, Sure enough, she she got back to me within a day. You know, just some some guy trying to figure out what to do with his life, and was just an incredibly helpful um, person to to reset my entire image, my entire uh, you know like what I wanted to do in my career. Mm-hmm. And so sure enough, that I, I enrolled and um, moved to New Zealand for a year and uh, studied geothermal engineering there. And then when I when I graduated, I had a little bit more time before I found another job. But that ended up being with Baker Hughes again. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so I came right back to Baker Hughes after being laid off um, about two years before that. Mm-hmm. And of course, I don't, I don't regret anything. It was, it was tough at the time, but that's, that's kind of like how my career into geothermal started. Um, and, and from there, within Baker, I, uh, I, I started as an engineer um, doing like research and development. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then just kind of worked my way up into a, a product line management role from there, and uh, was was managing um, like high temperature uh, electric submersible pumps that are used in geothermal applications on our, our for our global business. And then um, the company, you know, Baker Hughes kind of went through a transformation yeah. in the past two years. We we were Baker Hughes, then we were 
Baker Hughes, a GE company, and then GE divested and we became Baker Hughes again. Okay. But it's, it's new, it's a reborn um, company. And mm-hmm. we have these really fantastic visions and, uh, and goals set for decarbonizing and we're, we're you know, meeting these goals and, and putting a lot of resources into it. So we became this new company with this focus on energy transition. Um, and part of that was geothermal, the other parts are like carbon capture and uh, hydrogen. And so I was, uh, I guess I was just kind of in the right place at the right time with a lot of passion for geothermal yeah. and, uh, and ended up being appointed to this, this role that I'm in now, um, which is helping to lead the company into the geothermal space um, on a number of different levels from partnerships to technology development to, um, you know, everything that falls in between that. So it's, it's a really incredible opportunity that I have uh, to, to, you know, make not just a transition from oil and gas, but make a whole company transition from oil and gas to geothermal and to other renewable energies. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. So I'm a geologist, you're an engineer. So would it be possible for us <laughs> to have a conversation about that skill set that you learned in classic petroleum geology, like how you were saying earlier in your last uh, comment that, you know, you use the same skill set, um, but only the outcomes are way different. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit more, like maybe getting into a little bit more of like how um, your technical abilities uh, cross applied to geothermal energy? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've always seen like such a small difference between geology and um, geothermal engineering and petroleum engineering. It's, it's almost like geology or, or, or I guess like petroleum and geothermal is pretty much just geology with mathematics added yes. into the mix, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so there's, there's just so many similarities when it comes to how things are done. And you, you could you'd find that the majority of um, people who are in geothermal uh, either have a background in A, geology or geophysics, or B, petroleum engineering. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, that, that probably covers like 80 to 90% of the entire workforce of, of everyone that I know. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it are people who manage to just stumble in on it, mm-hmm. uh, seemingly by accident. But <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's like the core, the core of, our, um, of our industry is, is geology, you know, just everything around it. So, um, you know, how the technical skills apply it's um, it, it, I, they're 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 the same problems with just different parameters to it, you know. Yeah. With regards to oil and gas, you're really more concerned about taking things out, and mm-hmm. you don't really care about, for lack of a better term, putting anything back in. Yeah. But with geothermal, you know, there's there's this um, whole notion of sustainability when it comes to maintaining your your fields and your reservoirs, and so you're essentially using. The, the hot water that's coming out of the ground as just a working fluid to get the heat, you know, mm-hmm. the heat, the energy, it's, it's, it's what the end game is. And then you extract the heat from the water through whatever means you want. And uh, the water goes back in and it recharges through the reservoir. So um, a lot of the technical challenge is the same. You know, you have to drill a well, you have to complete a well, you need some sort of uh, technology to utilize the heat on the surface. And then you have to drill another well to put the water back into the reservoir. Okay, that sounds fascinating. I, I don't know a whole lot about geothermal myself. So when you say that you take the heat out of the water, how exactly does that happen? And are you able to like explain that in layman terms for a broader audience to maybe grasp? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a couple different ways. So, um, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll digress a little bit, but, you know, when we're talking like geothermal in the context of other renewables, 
um, most people just think of wind and solar. Those mm-hmm. are the renewable energies. Yep. Some people will, will know what geothermal is or wave energy or, or things like that. But, you know, the vast majority of people have no idea what it is yeah. or how it's utilized um, or, or, you know, what the potential is. And I can tell you the potential is huge. Yeah. And one of the key advantages that geothermal has over um, the, uh, the other renewable energy sources, not saying that it's better or it's worse, it's just it, it needs to all be part of the mix when it comes to, like, a carbon-free energy grid, is that geothermal um, is, is on 95% of the time. You know, it doesn't matter if the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. It, it always just runs. Mm-hmm. And it has the advantage of being able to supply both power through, like, power generation systems mm-hmm. and heat. So that's that's a major difference because you can't really get heat from a wind turbine unless you have like an electric house heater or something like that, you know. But um, when uh, to, to get back to your question on like how geothermal is utilized is is like I said with power and with heat. So the water will be uh, sometimes it'll flow naturally to the surface through the well, or sometimes it'll need to be pumped up. But when it gets to the surface, you have a couple of things that you can do with it, um, and it really just depends on the temperature of the water. So if the water is really high temperature, or if it's, you know, in some cases, superheated steam, you're able to pretty easily hook that up to a, a power turbine mm-hmm. that would just generate power that you can sell to the grid or use to supply homes. Um, that those are those are kind of like the they're not as common. You know, there's there's massive power plants around the world that are fueled by geothermal, but um, the the larger ones are kind of like the low hanging fruit, like mm-hmm. the multi multi-stage power plants that'll be a couple hundred megawatts. They're not as common anymore because a lot of that resource that's capable of producing all that energy has been identified and um, and it's been developed, you know? But um, the way that the world is moving right now is towards the, like, low to mid-temperature resources. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be between maybe, like, 90 degrees Celsius to 200 degrees Celsius mm-hmm. uh, water or steam, you know, whatever form it comes in. I mean, the idea is that well, we can use this to generate a little bit of power, you know, maybe like 10 megawatts, 30 megawatts, anywhere in between there. And we could also use this to generate heat. So um, I, I absolutely love the European market when it comes to geothermal. Mm-hmm. Because they have an incredible potential to use both heat and power to mitigate their fossil fuel consumption. Mm-hmm. So um, like looking at the Netherlands, for example, it, the, the growth rate for geothermal utilization in the Netherlands is almost exponential and, and projected to be exponential for the next couple of years because they're using geothermal energy to heat their greenhouses. Mm-hmm. So there are these massive greenhouses um, throughout the Netherlands that they're using, uh, they're drilling geothermal wells and they're using that heat to grow tulips and mm-hmm. tomatoes and orchids and just these, these really wonderful things as opposed to having to heat these greenhouses with um, gas that would have to be imported from Russia. Yeah. And so it's, it's really sustainable and really clean and, and just an amazing utilization of a renewable energy. Or like another example is, is uh, in the city of Munich mm-hmm. in Germany. Munich has some really ambitious plans to be um, carbon neutral by, I think, 2030 and oh, then wow. carbon negative by 2050. Um, so what they're doing is they're, they're really hedging their bets on geothermal. And there are, uh, at this point, like dozens of geothermal projects around the city of Munich that are both generating um, clean power, but then also um, heating people's homes mm-hmm. and, and providing heat for like agriculture and, and parts of the city. So it's it's just a, a fantastic example. And this model that they're developing 
is um, is is being replicated in other cities like Strasbourg and Freiburg and our um, house in Denmark. So a lot of different cities and uh, a number of countries throughout Europe are looking to use geothermal to mitigate their need for fossil fuel imports. Like Switzerland is another huge example of great potential for geothermal um, and, and they're really starting to put some resources and develop it. So just exciting times all around yeah. for, for in Europe and, and the applications are just really neat and incredible. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I know I keep seeing stuff coming out of Munich um, in Germany. For, that's like seems to be the most activity right now in the world. Is there any hot spots popping up in the U.S. where people are yeah, starting well, to like really start to take this more seriously, and hopefully, like there will be research money put in or, um, yeah, anything yeah. like that. So, so fun fact is that um, the U.S. actually generates the most amount of geothermal power than any other country. Oh wow! You know, when you, when you think about it, when you ask most people, they're like, "Oh, Iceland." You know, that's yeah. that's the country that people think about when when geothermal comes to mind. But um, the U.S. actually generates significantly more than Iceland. But the thing is, it's only like, you know, 0.01% of our total energy consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iceland, where I think it's like 17 or something. So um, we, we have a, a lot of geothermal activity and potential on the West Coast. Okay. So that's California, um, Oregon, uh, Washington, Nevada, and parts of Utah. Okay. Um, and it all kind of is, is uh, related to the the tectonic plates and the San Andreas Fault and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hotspots, you know, in, in Northern California, there's the largest geothermal field in the world, but there's a lot of interesting development and plans going on um, in Southern California in an area called the Salton Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, there's, uh, I think, some other, you know, opportunities in Reno um, or outside of Reno and Nevada and, and just in the state of Nevada. But California has some really great plans to decarbonize as well. And so... Um, we're seeing money uh, come from the California government to support geothermal development, but also now with the, the new administration in place, we're seeing um, a lot more money come down from uh, the Biden administration sure. uh, to support renewables, and a part of that is geothermal. And there's been a pretty sizable sum of money um, set aside for geothermal R&D, so I think the next 10 years, you know, we're going to be seeing some incredible um, technology developed and, and some resources developed in, in the space in the states, too. Yeah, that's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just maybe for some people who don't know, what is so fascinating or amazing about using geothermal resources as opposed to like natural gas, for example, is um, the output. So there is, is it just water vapor that's given off or what, what is sort of yeah. the, um, the byproduct, if you will? Yeah, I mean, um, in some cases, the byproduct is absolutely nothing. Okay. Uh, in some cases, it is it's steam, and it, it comes down to what the utilization will be. So, um, without going into too much, too many details, mm-hmm. um, there's there's a lot of regulation, and as there should be, on you know water disposal. Yeah. So generally, anything that's pumped up from a geothermal well is then just pumped right back down. And there's a lot of cases uh, where that water that's pumped up won't even see the light of day or just run through a heat exchanger um, and get the heat that we need for our, our uses, and then the water just gets re-injected within a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's you know, it's great because there's no emissions. Um, and when you look at the power density of geothermal and, and, like, the land surface footprint that geothermal has, it is significantly smaller than any other renewable energy resource. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're looking at how do I generate 10 megawatts with solar, you're going to need a pretty big 
area of land for all your solar panels mm -hmm. or um, you know, you're going to need some, some land in the right conditions for a wind turbine for something like that. But with geothermal, you know, you can get a 10 megawatt power plant in the size of a Walmart parking lot. Yeah. So it's significantly smaller and it, it has it's so much more or so much less disruptive mm -hmm. um, to the surface than, than other renewable energy sources. That's amazing. So one crazy idea that comes to mind. So going back to like oil field life, you know, those wells that um, they bleed water there. So they'd shut them down because they're just producing water, basically ran out of hydrocarbons. Can companies go back and look at some of those fields and potentially, uh, depending if the water is warm enough, potentially like access and buy some of those old fields? And I mean, is that at all doable from like an engineering standpoint? Oh, yes. Okay. You were talking about something that's happening right now that's okay. extremely exciting. Yeah. So, okay. um, like, like that's that's exactly the case. What you described is going on right now in, um, like, Texas. And, yeah. and uh, I think it's maybe the Eagle Ford, is they're looking at using, um, you know, ins instead of paying the cost that you would have to plug and abandon an oil and gas well, there is the potential to put some sort of heat exchanger in there or use it for geothermal purposes. And so... That, that is being looked at by a number of different companies um, and, you know, Baker Hughes included. So there's there's a lot of potential for that. Mm -hmm. The challenges come with, um, you know, the grid connections and, and mm -hmm. a lot of these wells are in pretty remote, remote mm -hmm. areas where you don't necessarily have the demand for the heat or the power. Yep. So there, there are some, you know, some challenges related to that. But uh, in Canada, for example, I forget off the top of my head what the number is, but it's in like the tens of thousands of wells in uh, in Alberta that have been identified as having potential for geothermal utilization. And so um, there's some organizations that have been put together in the last few years and some funding from the Canadian governments that uh, are, are trying to look at using these wells for geothermal instead of paying, you know, the same or greater cost just to plug and abandon them. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's incredible. How exciting. I'm going to really try to keep my eye open for some of that. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. There's there's a really great blog that I would recommend to anybody mm -hmm. um, called heatbeat.org. Okay. Um, and it's it's run by um, an individual named J.D. Beard in uh, in the University of Austin, Texas, and she comes from the oil and gas industry as well, and um, is is just doing an incredible job of fostering the pivot from oil and gas to geothermal. And so she's got a lot of great articles on that very subject of you know, utilizing oil and gas technology mm -hmm. and oil and gas wells for geothermal. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, another question that I have, it's, I guess it's kind of more of like a technical geological thing, but do you ever see heat fluctuations in any of these geothermal reservoirs and how does that impact? I mean, can that kind of cause things to go haywire or how common is it to get heat fluctuations in your reservoir? It yeah, it can be common, um, <laughs> and it does it does kind of disrupt things, you know. At, at the very least, it'll disrupt the amount of money that an operator is making okay. uh, when trying to sell a heater or power. Yeah. And it's you know, it's unfortunate because one of the biggest things that's been holding back the development of geothermal in the past forty years is simply just the cost. You know, yeah. we, we have to pay for thirty years of fuel up front with a geothermal project. But once you once you pay the cost of drilling the wells and getting the equipment, it just goes. You know, mm -hmm. it goes for thirty plus years, and the operating costs are so low, mm -hmm. and you start to make your money back. But it's pretty risky up front. It's pretty costly up front. So, like like you're saying with like um, any sort of heat fluctuations, 
that messes with the uh, the return that uh, developers have. And so <laughs> typically you don't want to see that. Um, technical challenge, technical challenges can pose to like, if there's any downhole electronics, um, any sort of thermal swing can mess with the electrical insulation mm-hmm. uh, or weak electrical insulation. Um, you could have some issues with just uh, like the reservoir, you know, coming to the end of its life cycle or being depleted sure. or, or losing pressure too. If, if you're not, um, if your injection isn't, isn't being done properly, you could, you could see reservoir pressure decline, which isn't a good thing. So, you know, it's, there, there are risks to it, but mm-hmm. I guess it's hard to say whether or not that applies to everything. Yeah. You know, there are some wells that, like for instance, in New Zealand, the, the project was designed for 30 years. There, there's one project that was designed for 30 years and here we are like 45 years later and it's still going stronger than ever. So yeah. Oh, that's whether, whether or not that's a consistent thing and on like the thermal swings and the pressure decline, it's, it really depends on the location and the resource. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And then, sorry, I just, I'm so full of questions. I have another one. No, um, do people ever look at um, the water itself? as it comes out, like if it's briny or contains like heavy minerals that can be mined or things like that, like other ways to sort of use that water before it's injected back into the ground. Yeah. So I've got a big smile on my face right now because you're, <laughs> it seems like you've done your homework with these questions. And, and you're, oh, I haven't. They're just, on. they're just kind of on the really? fly. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, you're, you're touching on all these just fantastic developments Thanks. that are happening um, in the geothermal world right now. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, I'm, pleasantly surprised and the answer is yes you know there's an incredible potential for lithium extraction mm. in geothermal brine okay and so okay, there's there's a i would say probably at least 10 projects happening around the world right now that's looking to extract battery grade lithium um from the geothermal brine before it's injected back into the reservoir okay and uh, a lot of them are showing some real potential for it which is just great because um Traditionally, the lithium supply chain is just a disaster for the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're either extracting it with open pit mines yep. in the form of like a hard lithium ore, or you're um, using massive evaporation ponds yeah. to uh, to get like a lithium salt out of a brine that takes you know a year at least to, to get this. So, and, and then I guess when you're looking at like the supply chain in terms of the U.S., um, most of the lithium is imported from either China or South America. So having something that's domestic. Um, like some projects that are happening in the states are that could supply lithium would just be fantastic for national security supply chain and the whole transition to um, electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. But there are so there's some other projects like there's one in the UK that's looking at lithium brine extraction. There's one in Germany, I believe. There's some in Australia, um, and uh, the technology is is really just coming online for it. So cool. I think we're going to start seeing a lot of these projects come to fruition, and it, it is really incredible. Um, Bill Gates has this fund called Breakthrough Energy Ventures, mm-hmm. uh, I believe. And um, he's actually, he's teamed up with like Jeff Bezos and Sir Richard Branson and, you know, pretty much the top 10 people in the Forbes 500 richest mm-hmm. of all time. And um, so one of the companies that they've invested in is a company that is uh, developing this resin that is used for lithium brine extraction wow. for geothermal. So it's, it's on the radar of a lot of, um, I guess, you know, global thought leaders. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But yeah, a lot of, lot of cool potential. There's some other projects too that are looking at like maybe the potential of extracting gold from geothermal mm-hmm. brine as well. Okay. But I don't know of any um, right now that are that are like online or technical. Okay. Uh, but, but it's truly potential as well. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's really cool. How about, have you heard of anything like copper related? No, uh, nothing related to copper. I, I don't know if copper is too common in geothermal brines. Okay. Uh, I could be wrong. Generally, like geothermal brines, they could just be really nasty too. Yeah. Like tons of silica, arsenic, mm. um, or like naturally occurring radiation is a is a pretty common thing. So mm. it's it's not like you know you'd want to drink geothermal brine, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> like yeah, it's it's like an elemental cocktail. Yeah. You know, if you ever look at a picture of um, there's a spring in Wyoming called Grand Prismatic. It's a geothermal yes. spring. Mm-hmm. It is just beautiful. It's got yep. all these incredible colors. Some of those colors are from like arsenic, you know, just these these terribly toxic elements. Um, they look really pretty, but you know, I wouldn't want to be going for a swim in it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. Yeah. So to wrap this up, I actually I just have a couple questions about um, more of the softer skills, if you will, of what we do. So do you have any sort of tips for our listeners about? how you got through the your transition and like what you did to maintain your happiness or success or are you into any like sports or reading or what do you sort of do to level out and to combat some of the stressors that we deal with being in this type of industry yeah i mean i can't stress the importance of hobbies Mm -hmm. um (laughs) to help help kind of keep my mind settled down because you know it is stressful and, and i think we're all I don't, I don't know anyone that's not stressed out right now just because of everything going on in the world and 2020 in general is just a dumpster fire. Yeah. So, like, it, it, you know, we, I think, you know, we all need an outlet, whether or not that's like, for me, I really enjoy woodworking and, and I'm a musician too. So yeah. that and just spending time with my family is a great mm-hmm. way to recharge. So that way when I, I sit down in my home office, I can really think about how to solve some of the problems that um, are, are we're facing and, and, you know, how to, how to monetize some, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the other thing is when, when I guess addressing the, the great transition that people are hoping to see happen from oil and gas and, and geothermals, you know, the potential is there, but it's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Um, by any means, it's not going to be easy. Geothermal is growing, um, is growing incredibly fast. But I think that the, um, there's almost like a, an overly optimistic view of geothermal being able to absorb the uh, the workforce that was let go from 2020 from the oil and gas industry. You know, there is yeah. room for it. There's And there's certainly, like, the need for the skills that, that are available out there. But it's just um, the, the, the conditions aren't, you know, as perfect as they need to be in order for that perfect transition of everyone that's looking for a job right now in oil and gas to move to geothermal. The best thing that I could do would be to try and set yourself apart with like some sort of geothermal specific certificate or degree or, you know, experience that you can get or, or even just trying to network, mm-hmm. you know, the, the geothermal industry is so tiny mm-hmm. um, that it's almost like everyone knows everyone else and they know what they're doing and can talk to each other about how their families are doing too. So yeah. it's, a, it's a really tiny network and yeah, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone um, that's, that's trying to make that transition and, and give my advice and, and help them out as, as any way as possible yeah. just because I, you know, I, I want to, I want to be able to help people come into this space because I think it's so incredible, mm-hmm. but the, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be like an easy transition and it's going to require some work. And it's going to be stressful and it, it, it's, it is stressful. You know, that's, that's the way life generally is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how can people find you? What is the best way? Are you, I know you're on LinkedIn. Is that the best yeah. way to reach you? 
I would say so. Yeah, you know, just 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 find me on LinkedIn, send me a message, and we can chat on LinkedIn, or we can take it offline and, mm-hmm. and have a call. And I've been doing this for for about the past year now, just just meeting with random people that, that get in touch with me and trying to give some advice. And and some people have been able to, to find them jobs with different companies through the connections they have. So you know, I'm I'm more than happy to to help anyone that that's asking for it. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Taylor, so much for meeting with me. It was a pleasure to chat with you, and um, I hope you have a really good weekend. Absolutely. Thank you so much.